Greg, you, before we get to uh, Martin Popov, um, who has written a half a dozen books on Rush, you had messaged me last week, maybe on the weekend, about this Canadian indie band that had the largest jump on Spotify um, compared to any other Canadian band. And so I'd like to, I don't know, spend some time talking about that. So why don't, why don't you sort why don't you bring that up? Yeah. So I heard Martin cross, Martin cross <clears throat> Martin is joining us. Alan cross. Maybe will join us someday. Um, Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be nice. Uh, I heard Alan cross the other day on the radio talking about the band that had the biggest lift on I think it was like older songs. So not new. So not like okay. Billie Eilish comes out of nowhere. Not out of nowhere, but you know what I mean? Kind of thing. Yeah. <clears throat> it's like, it's bands that had the biggest lift on their previous, their, their back, their back catalog. Okay. And apparently the band that had the highest lift and now on is their this back any, catalog. Is this any band or is this Canadian? Globally, band? apparently. I believe it's globally. I don't know. Oh, wow. I, I meant okay. to look this up before you asked me because I yeah. you're going to ask me and I didn't look it up because I was going to get my my shot. Excuses, Greg. And I never do research anyway. Um, <laughs> and the band that had the biggest lift on their back catalog during the pandemic yeah. was Mother Mother. Mother Mother. Mother Mother. And the reason they had the biggest lift is because Mother Mother songs have taken off on TikTok. So for for the kids out there, can you can you explain TikTok to all of us? No. <laughs> no, I can't. Do you know what TikTok is, Greg? I see <laughs> I see videos on Facebook that have this little TikTok icon <laughs> on the bottom of them. Yeah. <laughs> Occasionally on Twitter too. Oh, that is. So oh funny. yeah. Apparently, apparently, kids have adopted. I mean, I know there was. Um, I'm all right. I'm okay. Uh, I, I can't remember if that's the name of the actual song. Yeah. Uh, no, no. I've got love. Sorry. Maybe that's the same okay. Song. So and so, so I know that did well, but there was a different song like really an older, older song that took off so on TikTok. So the top three Mother Mother songs on TikTok. Now, this is a uh, end of 2020 article from Rolling Stone. Hayloft, Arms Tonight, and Wrecking Ball. And they're all from the band's 2008 album, Oh My Hearts. Yes, it was uh, Hayloft, I think. Hayloft. Yeah. I'm pretty sure... Um, that's the song that had the biggest lift period. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's, it's a really, again, it's an old article. Have you ever seen Mother Mother Live? No, I have not. I have seen them many, many times. And I remember seeing them at the Casby Awards at the Warehouse, mm-hmm. I think, or Sound Academy. Yeah. Must have been Sound Academy because we were upstairs. And... Um, 
and uh, like you know kel kel always loved them and, and i like their music but i never yeah. really wanted to see them live and because i just felt they would never be able to pull off what they had recorded which is funny because steve davis from radical road yeah was has been a huge fan like he's seen them for years and loved them and and always told me, oh, my God, you'd love to see this band live. When I saw them at the Casby's, again, it was like, whatever, two songs they play at a Casby's Awards or whatever. Yeah. I was like, holy shit. They're, they're doing it. They're pulling it off. And each time I've seen them, it's been different sort of production value. And when I say production value, different kinds of live shows, like everything from Lee's Palace, where it was more broken down to big shows. And, oh, man, I mean, you got to see that band live. They're, they're phenomenal. Phenomenal. Nice. And so I'm so excited to hear that they've done so well. I mean, even their online shows during the pandemic have been great. Like I, I'm just so excited for them. So I think, I think what we'll do, Greg, is we'll, we'll, we'll share a couple of links uh, in the show notes. So there's an article from 2020 that uh, talked about uh, mother, mother. Uh, and then um, there is a, uh, an article on Alan Cross's website, uh, where he draws on research by a company called uh, Vibrate or Vibrate. Um, what, what, what is the date on that one? This is June 23rd. So a few days. Yeah, ago. so that probably was what I heard last week. Yeah, that was absolutely. what I heard last week. So, mother, so the top five, um, and I, this looks to be a growth, a percentage growth. Um, yeah. mother, mother. Number yeah. I'm one. not saying, I'm not saying like the most listens it's, oh, of it's course. it was the growth yeah, yeah, yeah. of their back catalog. Yeah. So they grew 585% in terms of followers. Um, they grew they, again, they, they went up to 1.6 million followers and the growth was 1.3. So they went from like 300,000 to 1.6. They are getting 8.2 million monthly listeners and their listener to follower ratio is 5.3. So they have more listens than they have followers, if that makes sense. And their playlist reaches 16.2 million. Um, and uh, there's a little note here in this, uh, uh, on this uh, table. Thanks to TikTok, Mother Mother were rediscovered in 2020 and launched to the top of the fastest rising rock bands. Their viral track, Hayloft, was included in over 300 Spotify playlists. So, good on Mother Mother. Hats off to them. That's awesome. Good Canadian band. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the pre-show. Hi, the following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find them at 1177 Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. Hello out there. My name's Martin Popoff. I'm a scribbler of many hard rock and heavy metal books, and you're listening to Welcome to the Music.
Welcome, 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 welcome. Thank you very much. Yes, I guess yeah. to introduce well, to myself, I'm, I'm just a crazy music fan uh, since the since the seventies, I suppose. I'm uh, I'm old as dirt now. I'm fifty eight years old. Uh, so I I was sort of woke to music probably by about <laughs> nineteen seventy three. Ten years old. So just all it had to be hard. It had to be heavy. Then I got into punk later. Um, I drummed a little bit as well, had a little bit of a bar band in the 80s. So, you know, Rush is, uh, Rush is near and dear to my heart because every young teenage kid in, uh, in rural British Columbia or wherever you happen to be, uh, you know, grew up on some Neil and, uh, you know, had, had to learn that stuff. Um, yeah, went off to university, uh, went, uh, did a undergrad in English and then did an MBA, um, and along the way, there was a lot of music and stuff all along. I moved to Toronto eventually um, in about 1989. So been here for 30 years, but from Trail, British Columbia originally, and the place where we would go to buy records all the time and learn all this stuff was Spokane, Washington. It was our closest mm. big city or Vancouver, but Spokane was just two and a half hours south. And then Vancouver was way, uh, it was seven, seven, eight hours. Uh, oh, wow. Coast, so, Yeah. Equidistant to Calgary and to Vancouver, basically. So, Martin, why did it have to be loud for you? You you talk about you know it had to be had to be loud music. What 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 attracted you to 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 hard rock to heavy metal? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I guess the first stuff was uh, was like Columbia Record Club things and stuff (laughs) your parents let you buy, and 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 it was just a random choice of Steppenwolf, Gold. Three Dog Night Live, Creedence Clearwater. But soon as I guess older brothers and cousins, not not an older brother myself, but our older cousins and and um, uh, an older brother of my uh, close friend of mine, Forrest Hoop, who was as crazy about music as I was. You know, as soon as we heard the heavy stuff coming from them, maybe it was a little bit of that. But really, it just it just tweaked the senses right away that uh, that we love the heavy stuff and it was only the heavy stuff. And we eventually me and my buddies had this rating system where you would you would be able to rate albums and call someone up and say it's a six out of eight, even though there's 10 songs on it because it had so so's on it and lousies and goods and average goods and really goods. And it was all a mathematical measurement of the heaviness, right? <laughs> so it was uh, it was all, you know, in the early days. It was like Nazareth, BTO, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, and then, you know, the first Kiss album is a new release. Um, and then, you know, Rush, kind of second album probably is, as a new release. And then on and on. Ted Nugent, Aerosmith, all, all that kind of stuff. And then, like I say, punk was just another form of heaviness. Loved all that. Um, was a big punk guy in 77, 78. Uh, and then the new wave of British heavy metal was another whole, you know, big pile of new heavy records. For the first time, there were more heavy records than you could actually even even buy. Wow. Was do you remember any of those eight out of eights or 10 out of 10s? Well, uh, actually, an interesting thing along that line is I remember that we thought the first albums that had no lousy songs whatsoever on it, like nothing mellow in order, were okay. Rainbow Rising. Uh, then ACDC, Let There Be Rock, then Sex Pistols, Never Mind the Bollocks, and then all three Motorhead albums. Mm. So it was kind okay. of that bunch of records all at once, were, which were the first ones that had nothing, nothing mellow on them. They, they didn't have the, uh, what, what was the name of the, that, those songs that all of these heavy metal bands used to come out with just to get on pop radio? 
Well, like the, well, power, ballads, the power ballads. Power ballads. Power ballads. Yeah. Power ballads. So, <laughs> they weren't, they weren't called power ballads in the 70s, though. It was ballads. You had Kiss yes. Beth and Hard Luck Woman and, you know, Home Tonight on Aerosmith albums. You had real ballads, right? Or yeah, you had a yeah. disco song or a pop song or something like that. Some other reason that we didn't like it. It was too boogie woogie or whatever, right? <laughs> so so you're, you're not looking forward to the Foo Fighters disco album yeah, no, no. coming out <laughs> no and and everybody tried disco in the 70s too there was there was all of that that was yeah. trying there. that's a whole episode of i have my own podcast and i haven't yeah. done the disco episode yet i don't think but uh <laughs> but yeah, i've got a podcast where i do kind of theming by pick up five examples of things and go through it so Nice. So when you when you talk about sort of the the early punks or the punk scene, um, it's funny we had Art Bergman on a couple of weeks ago. I'm only bringing this up from you being from the West Coast. Um, were you were you a fan of like that West Coast DOA scene at that time, or was it more like the Pistols kind of thing? It's funny. I've I just recently did so I've done um, 105 episodes of History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff, and the one that just yeah. went by, I've just did one today that went up on Halftime Shuffles. Last episode was on shuffles, but previous to that, it was about the start of punk in Canada. And so we were in Trail, BC, and, uh, you know, we only loved the heavy stuff. We had no tolerance for anything that was too artsy or post-punk or anything like that. So the heaviest albums were like the first two Saints, the Dead Boys, maybe the first Clash a little bit, certainly the Sex Pistols. But in Canada, the only one we had that was early on was the first diodes album 1977 came out on cbs toronto he, toronto band heavy album and then they went soft right after um and there were there were no other ones uh, and, and as i did in this episode the next kind of heavy things that came along were the subhumans album which is way up into 1980 incorrect thoughts and then doa which is 1980 and 1981 so that's when we had the heavy albums but um you know we were always we have that we you know as, as kids we had that uh Canadian in inferiority complex too, that you think everything that comes from your country is boring. And, you know, I don't know if subconsciously I knew about CanCon or not, but probably, you know, it probably sunk in, right. You'd listen to Canadian stations and they were forced to play Canadian stuff. And so, so we were really down on Canadian punk and um, because there just wasn't enough of it that was heavy enough. It was, it was, it was really just a handful of albums period around the whole world that were actually heavy enough in 1977. Is it true that uh, Max Webster is your favorite band? Uh, I've been known to say that. I mean, it's definitely my favorite Canadian band. All right. um, and and the rest of my answer to that question is really dull. It's like ACDC or ZZ Top or Blue Oyster Cult or, you know, to be my favorite band, you have to have a million albums out and have been around since I was a little kid, basically. You know, right. it's, that that kind of falls into it. I mean, I have other bands I absolutely adore, but uh, I have a really boring answer to that. But Max Webster's not a boring answer. That's a pretty interesting yeah. answer for, for Canadian absolutely. band, right? I, I found it. Um, I found it interesting, a, a little bit humorous, uh, because I, I would love listening to this album, uh, Hysteria by Def Leppard. Um, that earned a zero out of whatever for you. No ratings, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. What, what was it? Too glam? What, what was it about that uh, that album? Oh, I just it just sounded like a Brian Adams album, who was yeah. the mortal yeah. enemy as well. It's just like 
silly, insipid lyrics. Joe's vocals, he sounded like he just smoked a half a pack of cigarettes and then you just triple, triple and quadruple track that. Um, you know, just inane lyrics, uh, you know, horrible drum sounds. The guitars were really neutered. You know, I was a pretty big fan of Pyromania and I think the first two albums are classics, especially the High second dry. I'm just your average, you know, old school Def Leppard fan, right? And yeah. I mean, a lot of people have this opinion, right? But, um, you know, and then a lot of even people who like Hysteria are really mortal enemies of Adrenalize, right? So, yeah, just I, I, I didn't like anything about it. I didn't like the name of the band, the logo, <laughs> the colors on the cover, um, you know, the, the title of the album uh, and just and just everything about. And then, of course, you know, there's that jealousy that why is this selling so many copies? Why is this so big? You guys know, you know, millions of people have no taste and all that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So but no, I just. I, just the production, just just there was it was a non-starter. Just rubbed me the wrong way right from the production floor. It's Fair funny because when he brought up when he brought up Def Leppard and you mentioned about the second album, I was going to ask you about High and Dry because to me that was my first real introduction to the band, and uh, nothing after sounded anything like it. It was it was such a great album for me. I loved it, and then the rest was you know poppy, I, you know, but I don't yeah. Yeah. yeah, Pyromania actually is, uh, you know, we we were, uh, you know, up and down on it. It was kind of your standard seven out of 10, you know, all no. in, in 1983, 84. But, um, you know, it was it was helped by having some pretty heavy, deep tracks on it, like Die Hard, The Hunter and Rock Till You Drop. So there were some good, heavy things on there. What was the other one? Stage Fright was pretty heavy. Foolin, uh, you know, Foolin's actually a pretty cool tune as well. Didn't like Photograph. That was the least favorite on it. But other than that, you know, this is a fairly heavy album. And, and for the time, you know, the production was was, you know, extreme, but it still had kind of bottom end and it didn't sound that synthetic. It was it was almost like, hey, this is kind of like a cool professional production. But then by the time of the next one it was all over. So. When when did you first get introduced to Rush? I would say um, I, I can't really quite remember, but it would have been around the time of Fly By Night Maybe not the first one as a new release, but uh, certainly Fly By Night and certainly by Caress of Steel. I think I remember seeing or getting that as a new release. So we were into it, you know, and, and you know, I've never really thought of this, but or thought about this much. But um, when we did the Metal Evolution episodes at Banger Films and we and we explored the idea of an extreme vocal, it's like I sometimes wonder that that I was OK with Three Dog Night. And even Creed's Clearwater Revival and Steppenwolf, because they had a pretty extreme vocal. John Fogarty as a vocalist was pretty extreme over this bluegrass country music, practically, right? You know, or, or hepped up country, new country, maybe it was at that time. Very weird band, right? But <laughs> but Rush, Rush kind of like made up for the lack of lots of heaviness, I think, yeah. with, with Getty's vocal being very extreme. Ah, very interesting. Yeah, because they they're not necessarily a loud, uh, a loud well, it's band, prog, right? It's progressive yeah. metal. They invented progressive metal. Um, you know, there's a fair number of riffs across those records, and and when they were heavy uh, on those first three or four albums, they were they sounded quite heavy, and they sounded quite sophisticated in their heaviness. It was a different hmm. kind of heavy than you got with Kiss or Aerosmith or Ted Nugent. That American heavy that's based in the blues, Rush's heavy had had a prog rock sophistication UK to it. Prog so, rock, yeah. so it really felt more important, right? Yeah. Than Cat yeah. Scratch Fever or something like that. Yeah. That's so true. <laughs> um, you talk about 
in in the last book, Driven. Um, and by the way, like what it, what it, like is it four or five? How, how many rush books? Six actually. Six. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and they're they're all different from each other. That's why I was ever even able to keep any enthusiasm whatsoever for doing them. Right, I had to have a good reason to do the next yeah. one, the next one, the next one. Right. So, so I mean, these these last three ones, um, Anthem, yeah. Limelight, and Driven. Um, how did you find new material? Um, well, that's you- yeah, that's that's a very specific answer to that. So, so the reason this was able to be done at all is because first off. The official Rush biography was me, and I did that way back in 2003, and that was called Contents Under Pressure, and it was for ECW Press, and it was woefully long, long out of date, plus it wasn't even a very long book, right? Okay. So the other two books were totally different concepts. We don't need to go into what they were, but um, what happened was because I had worked on the Rush movie, Beyond the Lighted Stage, mm-hmm. I was there full time in the office for nine months and, and transcribing those interviews. And I had all those interviews and stuff just one day, years later, I just thought, you know what? Uh, I need a kind of new book project. Uh, I, I was at the, the, the banger barbecue party out in the, out in the parking lot and almost on a whim. I, and, and without even knowing I would hook up with EZW again on it, I just said to Sam and Scott, if I flipped you a few bucks, you know, could I, could I use the interviews we didn't use in the movie? Because when you do a movie like that, it ended up at 88 minutes. One of the one of the corollaries, if I pronounce that right, about documentaries is that they say, you know, you'll you'll film like an hour of interview and you'll use one minute, you use one mm-hmm. minute per hour of interview footage. And it, it kind of worked out that way across all of the guys. So I knew there was a lot of stuff. Right. Um, so they were fine with that. And the Rush office was fine with that. And Rush's lawyer is a buddy of mine. He was there. Um David Steinberg. So he just walked up to him and asked him about it. He said, ah, great idea. Sure. Go and just ask Peggy and make sure these guys are okay with it. Yeah, it's a good idea. So, so then I went to ECW and said, you want to do this? We'll, we'll update the old biography. So I had my old one to use as a trunk. Um, and then I decided because in the old one, I didn't use any outside press. So I decided I'm going to use outside press too. Plus I'm going to use this banger material that we didn't use in the movie. And I knew I had enough for, for the mother of all rush books. And that was the original plan. We were going to do one big book, but as soon as I started chopping and changing it, throwing it into the chapters by album and stuff and adding up the word count, I realized that I had, you know, enough for, for three books and it, you know, it comes out as uh, that's them there. So it comes out as, you know, about, uh, I don't know, 380, thousand words something like that three hundred sixty thousand words so so it, it's exactly enough for three long books so yeah. that that's why and how it happened otherwise there's no way i was going to do a, another rush book yeah that's really interesting when, when you started driven um what like what what year was it when driven got started and and, and when did you finish that book um, I finished it well before Neil died. Um, I started it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, st- I did them all in, in one big thing. Cause that's okay. kind of what you got to do just to yeah. keep your head in that space. Right. Knowing, cause you're moving stuff around left and right back to one book and forward. So I kind of did them all at the same time. Okay. Um, so it, it's been done for, I don't know, three years, two and a half oh, wow. years, something like that. 
Um, so quite a while um, it was finished. And then obviously Neil dies and we had to go in and make a few changes. I didn't change it that much because yeah. I didn't want to dwell on it either. Sure. Um, you know, I didn't want to make the whole end of it, you know, this emotional thing about Neil dying. So I, so I changed the intro a little and I changed a bit at the end, but I didn't change the tense, you know, past tense, present tense, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff to, uh, to reflect that he's gone or any of that. Mm. But um, yeah, no, they, they you know, Books books have a long lead up time of layout and going through edits and all that okay. stuff. So, yeah. I, in in the beginning, somewhere in the beginning of Driven, uh, I think I don't know, I can't remember who you're interviewing, but uh, the person says something to the effect that Rush is really Neil's band. Um, you know, he's not he's not necessarily he wasn't the first guy in it. He you know he was he was the second drummer uh, for the band. And I didn't remember that quote until I went through it to sort of jot down some notes for this conversation. But as I neared the end of the book, um, I thought to myself, yeah, this is really a story about Neil. Or or it seems to be, at least to me, that the story of Rush, at least sort of the the latter part of, uh, of the story of Rush, seems to be a story about Neil. And how we approach drumming, how we approach the music, how we approach the band. Um, obviously, um, the, the heartache of his daughter and his wife passing, uh, and then him coming back. What, what are your thoughts on Neil's place in the band? Well, that's interesting because I don't I don't remember that quote, and I would disagree that it was Neil's band because as time went on, actually, it started pretty early on. It was really Getty's band. Um, Getty was really the boss and called the shots and he was the most enthusiastic about the band, I think all along. Right. Neil was the guy who was kind of hard, harder to get out on tour. Uh, you know, they all had a lot of outside interest, but I think Neil's outside interest interested him more than the other guys' outside interest. But you're right about the book being Neil's book, almost because there's so much that goes on in Neil's life in that book, the, yeah. the tragedies and and he gets into all sorts of other things and and kind of over over uh, hauling his drumming and bicycling and motorcycling and all that kind of stuff. So um, and then dying at the end. Um, so there's a lot there's a lot of Neil in the book um, because so much happens to to, to Neil. But I, I think. Um, you know, it really started to become Getty's band, if if I could say so, probably in, in the very early 80s. It just okay. seemed like he had the most enthusiasm for like video and, and working on the stage show. And obviously he was the guy pay, playing two sets of instruments. And he was he was pretty involved in the in the lyrics in terms of, you know, not writing the lyrics, but, you know, having to collaborate to turn them into good lyrics and why and and having them be reflective of his personality as much as Neil's uh, somewhat. But uh, but no, I, I um, you know, and there's even some, you know, some derogatory little things you see here and there about Getty being the taskmaster and all that stuff. And you don't want that look from Getty and blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> so really, I, I think uh, I think it uh, Getty is the guy who who took the reins and took charge the most of the band. Interesting. Mm. It, you talk about, uh, at least in the third book. Um, how the band was always looking to, I don't know if reinvent is the right word, but they, they always, they always seemed to, have, you know, at, at least I, I think it was Alex who said this. They wanted to make sure each album was different. They didn't want to go back and say the same thing or play the same thing. Um, 
and then they talk about the sort of the influence of, of David Bowie on that, how David Bowie was like a chameleon, always changing. Um, I'm wondering your, your thoughts on that. And I only bring it up as someone who's not the biggest Rush fan. I would say that you could hear a Rush song, and if you weren't even a, the, a top fan, you knew right away that was Rush. And I don't know if it's because of uh, Getty's you know, distinctive voice or you can always tell by the drums, but your thoughts on, on the sound of Rush. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It, it did change a lot over time and, and they were intellectually curious. They were always moving ahead. They always liked the idea of new technologies and they mm. also were always big fans of music. Although famously they didn't really talk about other bands all that much. Um, maybe they weren't asked asked enough, but um, you could tell they were always, you know, pretty, pretty uh, highly evolved students of, uh, of other music and, and a lot of pretty, pretty, you know, unknown obscure stuff as well. But they, um, they always had that sort of feeling. I think they had the Canadian inferiority complex too, that they always thought what other people were doing was much more exciting and exotic and magical than what we're doing. And yeah. so they, you know, they, they, um, they got enthusiastic for, for other music and thought other people were geniuses and they weren't kind of thing. And they fall and they followed a lot of those paths. And so some of it actually makes them look trendy and some of it makes them look fearless and, and moving into new directions. And, and sometimes those experiments, those, those, you know, uh, those time capsules, those albums come off as trendy. And sometimes they come off as uh, as just like, so absolutely on a path of their own, like right in the beginning when they're inventing progressive metal, that's on a path of their own. Um, but maybe the late eighties albums are a little trendy you know, a lot of, a lot of electronic drums and syndrome the divisions and, around that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, yeah. um, you know, uh, keyboard sounds that are dated, but because they're so intellectually curious and technologically mm -hmm. curious, they're early adopters. And when you're an early adopter of stuff, you know, that that's when, you know, you haven't let everybody else do the groundwork and figure out what's in good taste or bad taste. You're just in there doing the stuff in bad taste, right. Um, <laughs> right off the bat. So, and then, and then you get to later albums like Vapor Trails or, or Snakes and Arrows, or even the last one where they're, where they're really off on their own path and not sounding like anybody. Uh, you know, there's so many times they could have gone in one direction or another. They never tried the industrial direction. They never tried the new wave of British heavy metal direction. They never tried the new wave direction or say the early new wave direction. They kind of mm -hmm. tried the, mm -hmm. the later one, I suppose. Uh, mm -hmm. Power windows, hold your fire, I suppose. But um so yeah, that's and they would admit that as well. They they actually think some of their albums are are somewhat semi failures or whatever, and other ones are are successes. But uh, I I think when they look back, they're proud of moving ahead quickly all the time. It's interesting you mentioned about sort of the Canadian inferiority pro complex kind of thing because um, you know I've worked with different software companies down in the U.S. and there was one company out of mass that I worked with and, you know, three or four of the guys I worked with were massive rush fans and they couldn't like, they knew I was a fan of rush, like growing up as a kid and that, but like they couldn't understand how we didn't idolize them even more than we did. I don't know if that's us as a Canadian collective, you know, again, we love rush, but we love tragically hip, you know, but but my American buds just thought we should have idolized them more. That we should have given them more credit. We should be loving them more. I don't know what you like. What do you think about sort of the U.S. audience view towards? Rush? Yeah, you know, Australian 
fans and bands think yeah. the think the same way. French yeah. bands think all their own bands suck, and you know, Brit- <laughs> British bands realize like we're nothing until we make it in America. So it's always like that, right? Um, yeah. And then, but Canada definitely has that, and and again, maybe it is somewhat the subconscious uh, self consciousness through the subconscious. Um, yeah. You know, understanding that there's been CanCon in our life our whole lives, right? Um, you know, where we've we've had Canadian music forced on us, and we don't really you know always think it's all that great so you know we we'd flip through the racks as kids and you'd see a lot of canadian mm-hmm. stuff get released right mm-hmm. uh and then and then you always thought it was a little embarrassing sounding so so you always think that the grass is greener and america is you know wild and exotic and really cool and all that but the funny thing about rush that's a that's a little interesting that people don't kind of realize is that um they they um they took to the states and toured there uh, harder at, or as hard uh, as as any American band would tour, you know, the the Rust Belt and and the South and all of that. BTO did it as well. Um, and and when they would come back to Canada, they they would they would be pretty light on hitting all parts of Canada on every tour. And and mm-hmm. there was kind of like a resentment that grew up in certain, mm-hmm. you know, a, a legend would grow up around, you know, how Rush doesn't do well in Vancouver or they never come to Halifax. And then Rush says, well, when we come to Halifax, no one comes to see us. So there was always this little adversity thing going on. They probably didn't, you know, I don't, I don't think they played the prairies as much as a lot of bands. So, um, you know, they, um, they were certainly, uh, you know, as or more regular than any American band going around America, but in Canada, um, it, it, it was not like Rush just like hammered, hammered, hammered Canada constantly. They yeah. certainly didn't. They didn't play a lot. I know they played a one, you know, I think it was maybe three shows in South America, three big ones near the end. But uh, it was interesting to find out that they weren't huge globetrotters. You know, they, they did Europe. Yeah. They obviously did the U.S. Um, why, why was that, you feel? Yeah, I guess there's a little bit in the book uh, about uh, Getty kind of, uh, you know, taking a crack at Ray Daniels, the manager and stuff, saying that he was xenophobic and, you know, thought it was just too much hassle dealing with all these foreigners and trying to figure out how to, you know, maybe it's a little laziness or whatever, or you think it's not going to work out or you're pessimistic. Right. Um, so, so there was a little bit, uh, get Getty seems to hint that there was a little bit of a management ethic that we're not going to go through the trouble of trying to do all yeah. these exotic countries. And then there's that, uh, kind of apocryphal story of, uh, when they went to Japan once and, uh, um, Neil saw some uh, some Japanese mobster beating up on his girlfriend or wife or something, and that turned him off of Japan. Uh, you know, so they they didn't they weren't big in Japan either. And then yeah, so when they go back and do Russian Rio, they were astounded at how amazing it went over and how many people came out and how the the fans could all sing all the songs and all this stuff. And they and you could tell there was a little bit of regret that why didn't we do this sooner and do this more often? And here we yeah. are at the end of our career, and uh, you know and Look, look how amazing this was of a magical moment. It was one of their career highlights, but you know, mm-hmm. they're not a deep purple or even a Nazareth, but you know, certainly an Iron Maiden and some of these other bands that, you know, multiple trips to China and Indonesia and many, many times to Australia and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of these bands now played Russia repeatedly over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them have been to India a few times, um, you know, Israel, 
Um, not a lot, not a lot of Africa outside of, uh, outside sure. of, um, you know, hitting Israel, yeah. like not, not, no one ever plays anywhere else in Africa, but you know, in India is, is kind of a regular, you know, once in a while stop for some of these bands. Um, and then certainly all over the far East, uh, as well, but, uh, yeah, rush definitely not, not one of those. Hmm. Would love your feedback on the album feedback. What mm-hmm. it, what what were your thoughts when uh, when that album came out? It was like a not only was it cover songs, but it, it definitely didn't sound like Rush. Yeah, um, we actually I just went, I went on a Rush show a little while ago and we did our hypothetical feedback 2.0. Like what songs would you pick if you had your choice? Right. Yeah. And uh, I'm I'm kind of, you know, famously a big hater of feedback. I thought it was wow. very, very unimaginative choices and even bad versions to boot of what they did pick. Um, Mm. They kind of just picked songs kind of from a selfish place or a not realizing place that, uh, you know, nobody else wants to hear you do summertime blues or, or whatever else was on there. If six was nine and that who song the seeker or whatever, like, like they, they, you know, when you pick songs from your own youth and your fans are one generation younger than you, you're, you're now playing songs that are two generations back. They're really simple. They're really dull. They're short. They're boring. You're a big prog band. Uh, and, they, and they didn't do good versions of them either. The production wasn't all that great. There's zero, zero imagination. For a band that has so much imagination, there was none whatsoever. And then just to upset me personally, because it's yeah, all about me, it's all even about more, you. it was an EP, <laughs> right. and I hate EPs. I did a whole episode of my podcast <clears throat> about hating EPs, right? Yeah. You know, either make a single or make a full length album, but don't give us a long EP, an eight track EP, which, which is what it turned out to be. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's like, oh, right you just like two more songs and it would have been an album. And then we don't have to constantly stop and talk about it being an EP. <laughs> you, you mentioned about a single or an album. I'd be interested because we talk about this a lot on the podcast, particularly with younger artists. Um you know, again, in this time and this today where we're at, not just pandemic, but with the internet, you see a lot of bands releasing singles like Lexus on fire. We just release a single here or a single there. You know, what are your, what are your thoughts on that versus the whole album? Yeah. I mean, the whole idea of an album is a complete random construct anyways. So, so there's, you know, we, we'd be acting like old people if we started railing against the single or whatever, it makes perfect (laughs) sense. I mean, you just get it finished and you put it out. Um, Obviously the technology is such that that's kind of an easy thing. You don't have to get all this plastic and paper together and the whole lyric booklets and have a bunch of stuff all together. So there's various reasons for it. And obviously the other reason is, is because it's all about those instant plays and it's a lot more uh, strike while the iron is hot and, and it's easy come easy go. And there's obviously, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 times more bands every decade than the previous decade. Um, so yeah, you're just swimming in this big sea of, of, uh, of a lot of artists that you're competing with all the time. So, you know, I, I suppose without having really thought about it much, um, you know, you're, you're a news item, you're a news cycle, you're a news piece, whether you make a single or whether you make an album, you're still one news piece. Right. Mm, yeah, so, so I, I suppose, you know, it, it, you know, if you, the PR to get the word out there and stuff there, you, you actually get 12 times as much news out of putting out a single every once in a while as you would as putting out an album. You know, you talked about, you know, Rush not looking at other bands, but uh, I, I know you mentioned a bit, uh, Martin, 
um, in, in, in this last book, uh, I think it's Neil that had a liking for In Living Color, uh, which I think is Greg's all-time favorite band. Um, yeah, I'm curious if, if not, there's... Not, <laughs> you already blew it. Did living you say color. In Living Color? <laughs> Martin, he knows nothing about music. No. I don't even know why he's hosting a music <laughs> podcast. I mean, this is just like, he knows nothing. Anyway, sorry, Carrie, well, I'm also, saying... I don't even remember anything about this quote, so I'm going... Well, I'm I gotta get my... <laughs> living, color. living Color. He was a huge fan of the comedy show In it Living was Color. Great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why, why isn't Jim Carrey... In, in in a rock band, that's that's all I want to know. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, living. Let me get this quote. There's a lot of here we go. Living I color. I do remember. Again, I don't. I'm not sure who you're talking to here. I do remember talking to Neil about living color, but I imagine with respect to some relatively ideological stance, nothing directly affecting the band. So it's in your. Who who is saying that? Uh, that you are talking. To Rupert, I think Rupert. Oh, Rupert Hine. Okay, yeah. all right. Mm. So I Rupert's think... producing them in like '89 and uh, and '92. Yeah, you're talking. And to uh, Living Color was a big hit in '88 yeah. uh, with uh, Open Letter to a Landlord and Cult of Personality. Those were their two hits, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then they got the uh, coveted backing slot on the Rolling Stones' yep. Steel Wheels Juggernaut, right? So they were a big band right there. They were an it band and only lasted one album because they were very, very unaccessible. They were noisy and loud. I mean, outside of Cult of Personality, they were hard to get into. And then the next album came out and it was it was really even more hard to get heavy. into. Heavy, yeah, and, heavy, and abrasive heavy. and noisy and ragged and oh, strange, yeah. right? I loved um, it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, and, and the next album was was quite bizarre as well. So, so they yeah. were very artistic guys, right? Yeah. Um, they they were not they were not going to be uh, you know popsters and making hits and stuff. So I can understand why Neil liked them, although you know, come to think of it, it it's a bit of an odd quote because because uh, Living Color is not very much like Rush, except for the creative fearlessness, but they're, but they're much more uh, unmethodical, put it that way. They're much more chaotic than, uh, than Rush is, but yeah, you can understand. And, uh, and I, I don't even remember the drummer's name right now, but I'm sure he was a good drummer. I'm sure he was an amazing drummer. Yeah. Doug, Doug Wimbish in there and Vernon, Vernon yep. Reed. Right. Um, yep. so is, yeah. Corey Glover. Uh, oh, that, just, so that, that's the name of the drummer that the, what, what do you call him? Buzz, Buzz, Skillens, um, you had Muzz Skillens, who was Muzz the drummer. Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah, right. And the other guys. I mean, I remember. I even had an in-person interview with them at the uh, at the Opera House here, um, and uh, <laughs> listening to stories of Doug Wimbish playing with all these massive, massive guys. Like he was a big studio guy as well. Yeah. So, yeah, you can understand Neil appreciating them as musicians for sure. Yeah. yeah, my apologies. Will Calhoun, who was the drummer. Okay. Doug Doug replaced Muzz on bass. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you cool. for that, Greg. I mess up and you go heavy on me. <laughs> you mess up and it's like, oh, I'm sorry. He shows us all up. You're yeah. We're all getting it, the whole go. thing wrong. So. Way to go, Greg. Yeah. How many books have you written, Greg? Uh. <laughs> nope. um, I might be losing you again. I missed a bit of that. No worries. He's um, busting on me. <laughs> Martin, t- tell me a little, let, let's, let's take a little break from Rush here. Uh, tell me about, uh, and maybe you played in a bunch of them, but I know you played in a band called Torque and you were a drummer. 
Um, t- tell me a little bit about your style. Tell me a little bit about the band. Well, it was very, very little of nothing. I mean, the only reason anybody <laughs> mentioned or knows about it is because I end up mentioning it every once in a while. But no, we were just a bar band in, in about 1984, one summer. Um, you know, we, we were professional. We got paid. We, we went and played the bars and we got paid and stuff. But I think it, it was only like when I came back from university one summer. But but yeah, we had a whole set list and played and traveled and had a week week here and two, three days there and all that kind of stuff. So we were just your your basic hard rock cover band, crappy band. I was never that great of a drummer. You know, I, I had the big Neil Peart, uh, you know, uh, Peter Chris influenced, you know, big Pearl set with the big tune toms and all that kind of stuff and a lot of cymbals. And, and so, you know, I was, I was okay, I suppose, just to get through a bar band situation, but we were just a, a hard rock band and we were, you know, we were pretty snooty about what we played. So we, <laughs> we played some of the hits, but we played a lot of obscure songs as well. So, you know, we, we the dance floor was not, uh, not very full, just like, just like Rush, you know, when they talked about the early days, they said we would clear dance floor. You know, we uh, we we you know, <laughs> Rush is definitely not a, a a get up and dance and boogie band, right? So uh, and and obviously still to this day, it's you know the the famous thing about uh, about women at Rush shows is they're they're called Getty corns, right? Because they're unicorns, they're so rare to see <laughs> girls at a Rush heard that. Rush show. So there was this nickname for them called Getty corns, right? So anyway, so that was just one summer in the interior of BC. All right, all right. I was expecting huge stories of glory. So there was no dreams of, of, of glory. Uh, no, you know, never, never really cared. Like even oddly being, um, you know, oddly being uh, such a complete music freak, never took it that seriously thinking, Oh, I want to actually do this just the same way. Now writing all these books, I have no, like no desire at all to write fiction books. Never, yeah. never crossed my mind really. Um, I, I want to do art. I, I do art and I've done art in the past and I've sold some things and, and done a cool little new book that I did 39 illustrations for and made prints of them and selling those prints as limited prints. And so I love art. That's really what I want to do. That's what I've always wanted to do. And I'm going to, you know, spend more time at that yeah. getting, getting older now, but no, never, never really tried super hard to do the rock and roll thing. I don't <laughs> know why it's just weird. You, why, why is beyond your, your, your time? Maybe, maybe, well, you. yeah. And too practical and too practical is what it is, right? Yeah. Going to university and thinking you got to get a real job and all these losers, you know, this isn't going to work out for them and all that kind of stuff. Right. I, I you know, you're, from the, you're in the interior too. You're not, you're not, yeah. you're not even in Vancouver, like let alone Vancouver, everybody there considered it's a, it's a dead end place. Right. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm in trail BC of 10,000 people, you know, like I say, seven hours from Vancouver, seven hours from Calgary. Like you don't, you really don't think you have too much means to be a rock star there. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I've seen some of your paintings on your website. Oh. Um, really, really, really. How, how did you get into? How did you get into painting? Oh, I've just always been into okay. art, even as a kid. And then I did all of that stuff was from the nineties, and most of those are long gone and sold. But some are in the attic and in storage, uh, where my office is, and all over the place. But a lot of them are sold. And then, so I haven't been doing that very much. I've been doing more more drawing and stuff because it's neater and easier to do when you don't have a lot of space. 
Um, so I would like to get back to that. Um, so I'm, I'm still doing like a new medium search, but I could just see being a crazy, you know, very, you know, like an Andy Warhol factory guy who does a million things and, and wants to do a million things. So yeah. it's always in the back of my mind, but you know, I just, I just keep saying yes to book projects, right. They come along and you go, Oh, that'd be fun. That's because it's kind of in intellectually stimulating doing nonfiction books. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Cause you're, 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 you're writing history, right. Uh, of all these people who have real accomplishments and you're just writing about their accomplishments. Right. Yeah. Which you start feeling acutely when when you're when you're doing these books right yeah for sure so <laughs> so go ahead Greg. one of the one of the questions that i have is that and it's kind of a, a pointed question what book was the hardest to put together and I'm, I'm i'm i've got what i think is in my head but i'd be interested to know what you think what do you think boy hardest to put together um you know, I guess it's a bit of a struggle if you don't think you have enough of your own interviews and you feel a little inferior that you should have done more interviews or got more interviews. Yeah. So that's always a hassle. Actually, probably I was most intimidated by doing the books I did on Led Zeppelin and The Clash, okay. where I had to write four to 500 words of analysis on every single Led Zeppelin and Clash song. So that was like just the monastic sitting there, you know, these are two, you know, legendary Titan bands. And, uh, you know, to, to think you're, uh, because you're always thinking in the back of your mind, like, uh, like all the super fans are going to know you're a fraud. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so the super fan is kind of who, what, what you're aspiring to like impress and to have that person to say, you know, you're, you're, uh, you know, you did a good job. Right. Because, yeah. you know, I, I, I don't think I'm even the super fan on a super fan level of any band that I've ever written about compared to, you know, the super fans that I know are out there on those bands. Right. So yeah. yeah. Th the those reason two, I asked um, that is I, that's right. Mm -hmm. No, go ahead. Yeah. What, what, what did you say, have in mind? Yeah. The reason, the reason I asked that is I, I think every time it's a band I love every time this band would go on tour you'd hope that they'd stay together by the time they got to your city, which was yes. And I know oh, you've yeah. written. So that's why I thought I just like, and I've heard so many yeah. stories of them in the studio. And like, I saw them at Sky Dome in the round and it was like, they were not interacting at all. I mean, the, the musicianship, I mean, to me as, as a musician was unbelievable. Yeah. But I just like, that's why I asked that. It was sort of a pointed question. Yeah, we'll see. So that brings up a point like the yes book. I did a timeline and quotes book. So okay. I've done straight timeline books, like 30 of those. Okay. But I've done probably 10 timeline with quotes books. Okay. So those are easy to do because you're just popping in stuff. And mm -hmm. as they come to mind, you just go to the year, pop it in. So for me, for me to write a proper book on yes, that's all paragraphs and chapters that would intimidate me. Wow. Because because you have so many balls to keep in the air and put in <laughs> mind and go back to this and all oh, the guys doing the solo album. So there's so much arranging of yeah, something yeah. like that, right? I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. Last week, I think it was last week, Greg and I were chatting uh, a bit about um, the uh, K-pop Oh, I'm band. missing all that. Karen, oh. I'm, I'm not getting any of that. All right. You, you, are you, let me know when you're back with us. Hello. I missed all of that. Okay. Can you hear me now? But, but we're back now. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Awesome. Uh, last week, Greg and I were talking about uh, BTS, uh, the K-pop band. Um, yep. And we were talking about really their, their fan base and how, um, how rabid their fan base uh, is. And it reminded me of a quote as I was sort of jotting down notes for this conversation. Um, you know, I've heard, 
somewhere along the line that Rush has sold more consecutive uh, platinum albums than any other band outside of, I think, the Beatles and um, I can't remember the other band's name. Uh, Rolling Stone, I think, maybe. Um, Kiss and, gets brought up quite often, too. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm wondering about what is it about, you know, because they don't write pop songs. Um, it is prog rock. So, you know, it's, it's a discerning fan that listens to them. Um, your thoughts on uh, the fan base that, that Rush cultivated well, over 40 years. First of all, they're not they're not that huge a band. I mean, they're they're a big, huge rock and roll band, but they're but they're not this this stat about. Uh, can you guys hear me? OK, yeah, yep. we can hear yeah. you. You're both kind of frozen right now. But so so their whole. Um, that whole stat is a little bit more and it's gold. It's not platinum oh, albums. Okay. So yeah. so they they had they had a lot of gold albums in a row. True. Um, you know what that might say about the fans is that there's always 500,000 Americans, at least, who will who will go out and buy the Rush album, yeah. but not not much bigger than that. They have nothing even close to a Diamond album, for example. Right. OK. And there's, you know, various bands have Diamond albums out there in the world. And I think the biggest they have is like about a four times platinum, which is great. And and they do have like a dozen or 15 albums, um, you know, that are either gold, gold or platinum or little, but but not a lot of multiples in there. But yeah, I think that says something about them that, that you know, the fans will stick through them, even though they're radically changing their style all over the place. There's enough people who will stick around through the whole thing rather than have these peaks and valleys of you're a big, huge star and then you're nobody. Yeah, and then your star again, and blah blah blah. So they they were steady for forty years. Yeah, yeah, fair yeah. And the other reason they were steady, uh, this is an interesting thing about them as well, is that they had a little bit of a different business model. In that, once they became a headliner, um, they strive, they strove to get there. I think. Well, maybe they weren't striving to get there all that hard, but yep. but they they arrived at headline status pretty early and they never looked back and then they kept pouring money into the show and it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and yeah. they never supported ever again so so even when they weren't selling a lot of records they were a touring juggernaut that was massive right like they'd come into town and it was a huge show yeah. even though they were on an album that barely went gold right Fair enough. so that was another thing about them they always sold lots and lots of tickets and they always brought this massive show with a lot of video and a lot of pyro and, and crazy stuff uh to make up for the fact that you're just a trio right that's uh, yeah. a lot of trios think that way it's like we gotta we gotta really do a some big, extra, extra stuff here yeah. interesting mm-hmm. um let's talk about lost venues martin let's get to that segment um just now uh yes i'm curious um, as as a fan of uh, of live music um, around Toronto, where where we all are, uh, I'm curious if there's a, a venue or, or a number of venues that that don't exist anymore that you have fond memories of. Yeah, so um, I would say the main ones for that. I can really only do this for Toronto and why not? Because I've been here 30 years now. Yeah. So, um, and been seeing lots of shows cause you know, we started doing a magazine in 1994. So that's when I really joined the business and, uh, we were constantly seeing shows from then on over. So, um, the big ones that are gone that I have the fondest memories of would probably be the likes of the, the big bop in the cathedral room, which mm-hmm. was, uh, col- college or queen queen college. Down that end somewhere, Queen, anyways. Queen Down, and I'm Bathurst. forgetting where it is. 
but um, so it had the the um, the cathedral room downstairs, which was yep. the smaller room, and the big bop upstairs, which was the bigger room. So all of these, you know, smallish heavy metal legends that uh, we would interview and and go meet half the time, you know, all the yeah. time and get autographs. A lot of them played there. Another one that was pretty important, more important than that even, is the the warehouse in the government. Okay. So that was at the corner of uh, Jarvis and Queens Key, right? Yeah. Uh, and the government was about a thousand person venue right next to, well, it was all in the same complex and the warehouse was the 2000 um, person venue. And they were just big kind of soulless, ugly, <laughs> you know, caverns in a lousy location. Nothing, nothing special about them at all. Sure. But we just saw a lot of legendary, legendary bands there. And then a few odd ones. I saw Warren Zevon at this weird little place along the Danforth, way in the east, kind of around Danforth and Vic Park or Maine, somewhere around there. Uh, Warren Zevon. The Spectrum? In, what's that? Is that the Spectrum? The Spectrum on the north yeah. side? Yeah, could have yeah. been. North side? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And then another short-lived one, which was kind of interesting, was at uh, at Gerard and Coxwell, maybe, um, right by the dollar store there. Yep. Across from the dollar store. Uh, and it was a gym, either before or just after, but I remember seeing a few shows there. That was interesting. Can't remember what it was called. I, I'm trying to remember what that was called. It was one of my, one of my last times playing was there. Oh, yeah. It was a sh- yeah. very short-lived. Yeah. What, yeah. what bands were you with, Greg? Um, I was in a band called International Boundaries, sort of late 80s, okay. uh, mid, mid to late 80s. And then The Life was the band, um, huh. mid, late, late 80s to early 90s, okay. I would say. And you played that venue, eh? So, yeah, that was very short-lived, that one. Yeah. And now, apparently, the Mod Club's gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're going to be closed. But we have a lot of fondness somebody, for that Somebody place. picked it up. Somebody picked it up, and they're redoing it. What's that? Somebody, somebody, somebody's taken up that lease and reopening as uh, cream. You're seeing, we're seeing Crownlands. We're seeing. Sorry, Crownlands. you're all breaking up there. I missed that again. Yeah, we're seeing Crownlands at. Uh, I think they're renaming Mod Club to Axis. Okay, Access so Club. they're going to stay open. Yeah, you would yeah. think they'd stay open. Why the hell are these places going to close? Right, but what's yeah. the point of that? Yeah. You know, I, I I've never understood that why they uh, you know because what are you going to do? You're just going to open up as another venue again, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what else? Uh, Kingswood? Do they do concerts at Kingswood anymore? Oh yeah. Oh, not they anymore. Do? No. Oh, I don't think no, so. No, not anymore. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. So that's a venue that's gone. That was pretty legendary, yeah. right? For in the hairband era. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the the Ontario Place Forum. That remember the revolving mm-hmm. stage thing, oh, yeah. right? That that's now. I don't think they would do anything there anymore. Yeah. What else is closed? Um, those were the main ones I remember. Yeah. I mean, Exhibition Stadium, even I, I, you know, I saw Midnight Oil there. That's where I saw the Stones with Living Color, actually. Yeah. 80,000 yeah. people. Right. Wow. Yeah. So that's a venue that's closed. It's gone. It's gone. Right. I mean, that doesn't even exist anymore. Right. No. Right. BMO There's Field. No, real, is no it's now BMO Field. And yeah, right. It has to be that. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, yeah. So that's interesting. That one's gone. Um, yeah. I seem to remember a place in Scarborough I went to a couple of times. Um, there's, there's been the odd bar that's had amazing bands come in that you were kind of blown away that they ever got. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's about yeah, it's, it. That's, that's all I can kind of remember. Sorry about that. No, 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 no. It's, it's great. It's great to go down that because, uh, you know, there are so many amazing places, um, that are no, I mean, Gasworks, for example, even, right? Like, oh, yeah. Took- See, I, I missed Gasworks. Okay, mm-hmm. well, I, I do have another one because when I first moved mm-hmm. here, 
I saw, I, uh, I did go to three shows at rock and roll heaven, right? When I first oh, yeah. got here underneath the Bay, right? Um, yeah, so yeah, that was yeah. a weird Down place by the TTC. Yeah. So, so yeah. that's one, uh, <laughs> that's close that I went to net. like I say, never, never yeah. seen a show at the gas works. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's yeah. So, so I've got a, I've got a, a last question, but I have two quick things I want to hit. So you mentioned about the government and, um, one of the, one of my favorite shows at the government was seeing ministry there. What are you, what are your thoughts on ministry as a band? I missed almost all of that. Uh, can oh, you try sorry. that again? Um, so, so you, you mentioned about the government and one of, one of my favorite shows there early on was to seeing ministry there, the band ministry. No, I'm, um, I'm, I'm missing all of no. that. <laughs> okay. Uh, you back there now? Yeah, there you are. Okay. Now yeah. I hear okay. you. Yeah. All okay, right. cool. I got some editing to do. All right. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned about the government and one of my favorite shows at the government was early, like uh, I don't know, 80, early, um, anyway, 82, maybe. Um, and it was seeing ministry at, wow. at the government. Um, your thoughts on sort of ministry in that industrial heaviness? Well, I didn't see any of those shows ever. I mean, I saw Rob Zombie later on. I, I wasn't yeah. a big, uh, I wasn't a big fan. I didn't get to many of those shows, and that was a, that was just before I kind of got into the business. Like okay. when I first got here, I was working for Xerox, and I didn't know Tim Henderson. And I, we weren't doing the magazine. I didn't do self publish my first book. Blah blah blah. I was just a music fan, just like anybody else. Um, but I remember, uh, I remember having you know some some you know romantic love for that whole little thing ministry but you know the the uh whatever it was the third the big the big white zombie album um early tool which isn't exactly industrial but early nine inch nails as well my first oddly enough i've done 1800 1900 interviews you know uh over the years uh with with bands right my my first my first interview was Trent Reznor at the height of their fame. So that, wow. was, that was, that was very nerve wracking to, to like, Oh, your first interview, Trent Reznor at, on downward spiral. Right. So that was crazy. That's amazing. Um, but, uh, awesome. but yeah, I was, I was kind of into that stuff at the time, but, but no, I, I was not a, a big massive fan really. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then you mentioned about, <clears throat> we talked earlier about punk and, and metal. And again, we talked to the guys, um, Tom and Richard that did uh, nothing but a good time, the book. And uh, the, the question I asked them was, um, is Motley Crue's Too Fast for Love one of the best punk albums ever? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty punky. It's pretty odd. <clears throat> it's, it's got a really interesting, strange recording and an odd, odd drum performance. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it is pretty punky. Um, yeah, I love punk, that crossover. Metal. Yeah, yeah, it's a little... Um, it's a it's a little glam uh, because of Vince's twangy voice, yeah, and some of the yeah. melodies on it. So, like I'm talking the previous glam, like the, yeah. the early British glam. So it's got a little bit of that to it as well. Um, it's a pretty yeah, it's a, it's a pretty punky album. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to ask that because I, I asked. I those certainly would never give good. it best punk album because I love punk and I have a no 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 no. I, no. I know what you mean. No, I, I, I yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. So, so the last thing I'd like to uh, ask guests before we let you go is, um, you know, what's, what's in your earbuds lately? What are you listening to that people should be checking out? Boy, um, I'm really bad about that um, because <laughs> I don't listen to a lot of new music, okay. but 
there's enough new music that I do listen to by heritage artists to keep me busy for my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's hundreds of albums, you know, not hundreds, but a hundred albums, new albums a year by yeah. old fogies that I listen to. So there's that, but I'm usually listening to whatever I'm writing a book on the most, mm-hmm. or I'm listening to what I have to do for the next video show that I'm going on or whatever. So I, I seem to always be doing homework, um, <laughs> but, but I'm, but I'm not, I'm not the type of person to listen to bands that are made up of, of like 20 year old kids. I, I don't know. I, I have something about listening to super young kids, you know, telling me, you know, what life's all about. In the <laughs> it just, I, I, I can't do it. Right. Um, and and I, I find anything and I've always felt this way, which is really weird, but I, I find it's, it's very easy to find uh, music by younger people, super pretentious, except in the heavy metal field. So in heavy metal, you know, we could go along and we always did. And even when I was listening to lots of new music, which was only 15, 20 years ago, like I was listening to everything new. It wasn't that long ago. Right. Um, but but it was always easy to listen to even heavy metal bands that were younger than you, because for some reason there wasn't that pretentiousness about it. Mm-hmm. Like we're channeling old blues guys or all oh, the Eagles or Neil Young or whatever, like, like we're the next, those guys. And like that always seemed pretentious or, or the next Smiths or something, right. Or the next REM. Um, so that's a weird thing about heavy metal. It, it, uh, it, it, it knows it, it, it knows its place and, and it, and, uh, and those people are usually not pretentious. Awesome. Martin, thank you so much for this. We really appreciate uh, your time, your insights, your knowledge. All um, right. Thank, thank you, guys. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, where okay. can people Where can people go, Martin, before we let you go? Where can, where can people go to find out more about uh, what you're doing, your books, and, and even your music podcast? Um, you guys are cutting out there, but can you hear me right now? Yep. Or am I frozen? Yep. We okay. can hear you. Yeah. Um, all my stuff's at martinpopoff.com. Um, anything that uh, I have in print, I'm, you know, my main income is a reseller, a buyer and reseller of my own books. So I'm signing books all the time and sending it out from the office. So anything that's in print, uh, there are PayPal buttons there and a whole description of the book uh, for Canada, for the States International. So martinpopoff.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, you, thank guys. You. We'll talk to you later. 